Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, brought to you by Courtroom Sciences, Inc. I'm Dr. Steve Wood. Back with me again, Dr. Bill Kanaski. Yo, yo, yo. I want to start this podcast <laughs> off with what I would like to call the Kanaski rant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you got some things you want to rant about, Bill. So what, what is it this week? Yeah, I think we need to make this an official, because I pretty much start most podcasts like this. Not all of them. I think just the ones with you. I have a guest on. I try not to rant. I have a laundry list of things. By the way, maybe you may notice you haven't mentioned my attire. I'm wearing workout clothes right now. Do you want to know why I'm wearing workout clothes? Why is that? Because you had to work out. I, so I, I, I had to lift weights for 90 minutes just to get ready for this podcast because I had to get the mental just negative energy out to start this rant. Anyway, there's a famous line from a movie, which I, there's no way you remember this. Remember this? Remember this line? I'm running in the red. Running in what? the red. Don't mess oh, with me. What movie? One of, one of the greatest, probably Quentin Tarantino's greatest movie, Pulp Fiction. It's, there you go. John Travolta. That's running right. in the red. A please would be nice. He says, pretty please. <laughs> pretty please with sugar on top. Clean the leaping car. Yeah, I don't want to get us a uh, X rating on this or R rating. No, that would just stay away podcast. from that. Our... But yeah, I'm going to start the rant. Okay, so my, I mean, my, my first rant, Steve, are you a fan of chicken wings? I am a fan of chicken wings. Okay, I, I go out last night. I order a dozen wings. Okay, now I'm, I can't do the hot stuff anymore. As I've aged my, I mean, it tastes great, but like I'm just ruined for the next three days. Are you a hot guy, a medium guy, a mild guy? I'm actually, I'm a, I'm a hot guy, but I am actually ruined for the next few days too. But I, I look at it as the price to pay. Well, yeah, in, in Los Angeles, you're uh, you're taking Prilosec like M&M's. <laughs> That's right. So I'm like leaning towards the like honey garlic, you know, something a little light in the stomach. So I get 12 wings last night. Guess how much it costs? Where were you in Orlando? Yeah, Orlando. Regular restaurant. 12 13 bucks. 13 bucks. 2150. 2150. And I'm like, what in the bleep is this? And she's like, it's the chicken wing shortage. I mean, you know, my gas is four dollars. Now I'm paying 2150 for a dozen wings. Good. I think we need to raise our hourly rates. This is I'm not gonna build so 40 chicken, chicken wings. wings. Yeah, exactly. It's not like I was going, I ain't get the lobster, I ain't get the filet. I got chicken wings, damn it. $21.50. I shit myself when I got the bill. Anyway, that's just my first inform. But here's my formal rant. And I've done this before. It's a repeat of a previous rant, but I have to say it again. Social inflation. Yeah, I, did, I, I saw your I LinkedIn post. I, my LinkedIn, okay, so we've had several very nice defense victories lately, okay? And a couple of them were with admitted liability, meaning you're paying, okay? You are paying. And plans went high. We, we counter-anchored, came in low, prepped witnesses, helped with a uh, 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 Vordier juror questionnaire. Damages come in low. Huge win for the defense. So what happened to social inflation? Did it just magically disappear in Des Moines, Iowa? I mean, what we're, in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. I want to know where, because here's the thing. Every time there's a loss, oh, you know, in social inflation, these they blame the jurors. You know what Millennial it's like, jurors. Steve? They blame the jurors. And here's the thing. It's like the guy, and you know this guy, because I'm sure you have a friend like this that makes you crazy. I cannot stand the guy when his team loses, he blames the refs. Right. They blame the refs. Yeah. They blame the refs. What happened? Oh, man, those refs sucked. Those refs are terrible. 
like, well, maybe, no, maybe, maybe you got outmaneuvered. Maybe, maybe you got outworked, you know? And yeah, and you, you turn the ball over 10 times. Um, it's unbelievable how this is such a convenient excuse that and it, it makes no social psychological sense because here's the thing. It's either it's there or it's not there. You can't, right. you can't have it both ways. And what I've seen a lot in these insurance magazines and these articles is when you see one of these nuclear verdicts, first thing is social inflation. These jurors are nuts. But then a week later, the defense wins. Well, now, oh, well, oh, well, we put together this great case. Well, well yeah, <laughs> meaning <laughs> you, it kind of it points out the reasons why you're losing. And it's not social inflation. It's lack of preparation. Maybe lack of weaponry because your client sucks. You know, that's a potential possibility. Uh, your witnesses stunk it up on the stand, right? You didn't plan for jury selection really well. Just every time, this social inflation topic, absolutely. I did a webinar, I think I told you this before, and it was with the insurance industry. I was, a pan, I was one of five, and I was the fifth to talk. And all four of them, like social inflation, social inflation. So th that was the problem. And I get, I go, I don't believe in it. It's a myth. And everybody started yelling at me. And my response was, okay, well, if that's the case, if social inflation is the reason for nuclear verdicts, it would be impossible for the defense to win, right? right? I mean, if all jurors are pissed off at companies, all jurors are angry, okay? Jurors are upset about X, Y, and Z, all right? Post-COVID, post-Floyd, all this stuff, right? If that's true, the defense is screwed every time, aren't they? Right. Yeah, just there's no no reason to do anything. Just walk in there, take yeah. it, and get out. Take take your medicine and get out. But no, the defense, and this is what no one talks about these seminars, right? The defense wins a lot of cases, and it's convenient because when they win, it's a team. Now we really stuck it to them. But when they when you lose, it's social inflation. It's blaming the refs, Steve. I'm just telling you, it's blaming the refs. You cannot blame do it unless it's a duke carolina basketball game different story because the refs are biased towards duke. see i just did it there you see? did yep uh -huh. duke carolina no duke carolina blame those refs all day because they're pro duke everybody knows and that is the kanaski rant wow that was nice i, was I feel good. a lot better right now good I'm, I'm glad i'm here i'm always here for your therapy when you're when it's you're like ranting. a therapeutic this podcast is therapeutic yeah i think one of the things we want to talk about today though you and i you know, one of the things we keep seeing over and over and over and over again is this bad. a obsession with jury instructions. Obsession. That, you yes. said the word, Steve. Obsession. The the thought that the jury instructions actually matter uh, is being the first one, right? Maybe I'm going to go on a rant here, but yeah, know, a lot of go. times we we end up giving these forty page jury instructions to our mock jurors, and I mean, if they're not all asleep by the time I'm done reading the first page, I'm extremely surprised then you get finally get to the end then they get in the jury room and then as they're working through the <laughs> verdict form they don't know what any other words mean and now mind you we even leave the verdict the jury instructions with them in the room but never once do they ever actually pick them up to look at them or, or to see them right so then they just go in there and they have no clue about any of the terminology that it becomes so crucial to the case right so for example okay, so well, hold on. Before you even go there, okay. So we're we're in California last week, and did two mock trials, and I I made the mistake 
uh, cause I'm behind the, you know, the, the two way mirror. And I listened to you on day one, read the full jury instructions to the jurors before deliberations. Okay. Right. I fell asleep. I believe it. <laughs> really? I really, I was like going to stab myself in the face with my ink pen to try to wake up. It was terrible. It was awful. And that's why I have you do that job, because if I did that job, I would fall asleep while I was reading them. Yeah. And now before we go into some various definitions that make chairs nuts, again, without mentioning names, <laughs> describe the, uh, the defense attorney obsession with these instructions. I mean, it's out of control. Yeah. I, I mean, we've, we've had it before where, where attorneys will get very angry at us when we're saying, hey, you know, we're going to go read this jury instruction. We don't need this. We don't need this. We need to take this out. It needs to be really truncated. It needs to be really concise. And it's like, no, 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 no. All these matter. They have to know this. They have to, if they don't hear this, we're not getting a good read. They have to know this. And like I said, at the end of the day, they don't listen. They don't know. They don't understand. So really you're wasting your time and everyone else's time, even trying to write those up because at the end of the day, like I said, they're, they're not listening. I can tell you they're not listening. They're sleeping is what they're doing. And, and listen, it's a, it's a horrible position uh, for the jurors to be in, you know, uh, a recommendation that we could talk about after these horrendous, I mean, horrendous definitions is you can prime these jurors in closing argument to kind of define those things for them. Yeah. Right. Right. Before, because when the judge reads it, it's just not gonna, it's not gonna, it's not gonna stick, but, um, yeah. So <laughs> the obsession with jury instructions, there was a couple of them, you know, so we're watching the jurors deliberate. And of course, they're not understanding any of the instructions and they go off the rails. What's the what's the first one? I know which one makes me nuts, but what which one makes you nuts? Because there's we, we have like a top three or four that week by week, it's it's almost impossible for these folks to understand. I would say, and we just saw it recently, I would say anything related to like proximate cause or substantial factor. I think number one, it's the number one seed in the East. Oh yeah. man, number one overall seed in the tournament has to be proximate cause causation. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, At the time they can't even pronounce the word, let alone know what it understands yeah. or what it means or how it applies to the law or how, it's, how they're supposed to answer the question within the context of that definition. I mean- absolutely awful the jurors uh what, now what was the question from the jury when they said hey we need help we came in they go what does substantial factor mean yeah my my response to them was well, well a couple things a factor one, that's substantial <laughs> one it was i read it to you when i was doing the jury instructions that you weren't paying attention to and then two i said it's it's in the jury instructions that are right in front of your face yeah. And the 40 pages in front of you, good yeah. luck finding that. And that's, that's the other. So even though the instructions go in there with them, good, good luck. Right. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's like going through a, uh, Ikea manual, you know, you get the, you get that, you know, that furniture from Ikea, you're trying to look through this. And, and that's why, that's why no one follows those instructions because you can't follow. Yeah. No, it, it took them, I think, once I told them it was in the jury instructions, I think it literally took them probably a good five to 10 minutes to actually filter through and actually find the definition in the jury instructions. Yeah. And those Absolutely. were truncated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, and that's just overall, uh, even if you explained it well, I mean, I think you'll agree with me. I mean, it's my experience that the juror brain doesn't, 
it loves to skip over the three. So there's a three-step process, right? And you can't, you don't tell them this. They should rewrite jury instructions to say this is a three-step process, right? Negligence, and you define that yes or no. The second step's called causation. You got to answer that yes or no. And if you answer yes to both, you go to damages. Right. What these jurors love to do is they answer yes to one and just assume, well, well, you know, shit, if you got, if you got negligence, then there must be causation. They check that box in seven seconds and then they move on to damages, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean by, by the time they get there, right, by the time they talk about negligence, they've already talked about, talked about everything. So you see, like I said, the, the causation is almost a, a foregone conclusion by the time they get to it. Now here's the problem with that. And I've seen it work, but boy, it takes a, it takes a lot of work uh, from defense counsel is there are cases in which the defense has a causation defense, which is about the worst possible position to be in next to admitted liability. Honestly, admitted liability is probably easier to deal with, right? Because you keep right. a lot of bad stuff out and you're, it's your damages argument against theirs, less anger, right? Um, with these causation cases, it's really, really difficult because I think when jurors don't understand these concepts, they tend to give the benefit of the doubt because they want to you know, move forward uh, with the process. But if, if, um, if attorneys don't bring that issue, like, for example, you have a causation defense case, um, you got to bring this up in jury. By the way, how, how many voir dire questions have you seen on causation? Yeah, not, not, not many. Not many. And, and that's, <laughs> that's not good. Right. That's not good because I think you can start educating them and indoctrinating them in the jury selection process. I think I think on all cases they, they should be doing that. Obviously not admitted liability, but any case, you know, where there's negligence and causation or just if you're admitting negligence, but not causation. I think there's ways to do that in voir dire by defining it, asking, you know, does, any, does everybody understand this? And you know, a lot of hands will not go up. Right. And you can start to educate them and maybe even provide some examples to get their head around that. So then when they hear your opening statement, they're like, aha, two hours ago, that guy just gave me an example. This is similar. And then by the time they get and then you do it again in closings. Right. And you remind them. Then by the time they get to deliberations, they've heard it a couple times. And these statistical odds of them being able to get it at that point is re reasonable i will tell you this zero percent of the time if you just rely on the instruction epic failure am i am yeah. i right on it no you're absolutely right and we saw it when initially when the jurors didn't understand what substantial factor was we ended up doing it again and the attorney <laughs> did a good job on the second day of explaining substantial yeah. factor in the way that jurors could understand and they got it and they when by the time it's like you said when it got to the jury instructions they already had kind of had a sense of it. And when I asked them later, like, did you guys actually understand it? And, and then I asked somebody, can you say it in your own words? They were actually able to do it because to your point, they had heard it before. So it wasn't the first time when they're half asleep listening to the jury instructions. Yeah. And I, you know, uh, another, you know, another one is the whole burden of proof issue. It's not yeah. quite as bad. We're going to give burden of proof, the number two seed in the Midwest uh, in the tournament. They believe it or not, a lot of jurors jump right to that criminal burden, oh. even though you just told them and they're like, no, no, beyond a reasonable, beyond a reasonable doubt. And, and then you have to walk in and be like, okay, timeout. 
thing is in a real trial, you can't walk in and go, Hey, get back on, on, on track and redefine things. Uh, and the mocks you've done, have, have you seen that happen quite a bit? Uh, all the time. So, you know, we hadn't even talked about this, about what our list was, but my number two was actually burden of proof because See? absolutely every single time it's beyond reasonable doubt, beyond reasonable doubt. And yeah, like you said, you have to go in and say, no, no, no. Like it's and once again, you've read it in the instructions. You spend the time going through preponderance of the evidence means this and reading it. And then as soon as they go in, right, it's from all the TV shows, all the crime shows and all the things that they've watched. It's beyond reasonable doubt, beyond reasonable doubt. Yeah, I think um, for number three here, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll give, I think we're going to give this one the number two seed in the Western bracket is negligence. Yeah. That even that jurors tend to struggle because they know there's a bad outcome, right? And so a lot of a lot of people just assume, well, there must be negligence, which is why now back to Vordeer, you don't see many causation questions, which is a problem. You and I need to work more on that and, and really sell that to our clients. There's there's a, I mean the, the vast majority of the questions for Vordeer are are, are negligence-based, right? Yeah. Uh, my personal favorite being. You know, because this case has made it all the way to the courtroom, the defense must have um, have done something wrong, right? Like, who, who agrees with that? And so what you see is in jury selection, there's this amazing focus on negligence, which, by the way, I'm not disagreeing with that. I think that I think that um, the causation stuff needs to be worked into that. And it's a really difficult um, um, it's a really difficult concept. It's tedious. And there's some percentage of jurors, I don't care how many times you explain it, they're not gonna, I don't think they're gonna get it, are they? No, and I, I, what's funny is you can hear them talk about negligence just kind of in a colloquial type of way and stuff, but the legal definition of it, I don't think they truly understand because we hear people say, well, they were being negligent, they were being negligent. But like I said, what their meaning of negligent is versus what the legal definition of negligence is yeah. are often vastly different. Okay, I'm gonna go now. I'm gonna I'm gonna switch. Uh, we haven't talked about the South bracket yet. The number one seed in the South bracket is past economic and past non-economic damages. Oh, oh my god! Oh <laughs> my god! Number one seed in the South. Number one, Kentucky didn't get it. Nope. Past, past economic and non-economic damages. Did you see that jury try to figure that out? They're like, well, past. Well like from when he started working from when they, they just don't, un, they don't understand the timeline of what it is. And then they can make some huge mathematical errors because they don't know when it starts and, and, and when it stops. Right. Right. Yeah. Some, some of them you'll have small numbers because they get it. And then other ones you'll have these wildly huge numbers that even when, when the plaintiff counsel was offering up their past, you know, past meds and all past, lost economics and all that stuff like that the numbers are even higher than the plaintiff attorney even offered up so like where do you unbelievable. get unbelievable unbelievable uh let's let's go back to the east bracket and the five seed now steve you're aware of the the 12 five upset right that's the the one every everybody picks so this this number five uh it's it's worth bringing up but it's more damages but it's um you know the the future um, non-economic damages is brought future economic. I mean, they're putting together some formula on what this person would have made. Right. And they, yeah. it's just a math formula. No one really disagrees with it. You do have, sometimes they have that. Well, you know, 
this 19 year old could have been an astronaut. You know, he could have been working for NASA or he could have been the next Bill Gates. Right. And some of that gets crazy. But I think jurors are fairly reasonable on the future economic, future non-economic damages. Right. Um, I think this is where you see a lot of punitive attitudes sneaking in. I mean, how many times have have you heard the it happened the other day? The word punitive comes up in that juror discussion and there's not even a punitive question on the verdict form. Yeah. They think it's part of the, they think it's part of the damages. Like that's their job. And so again, um, now you've seen this quite a bit, right? I mean, damages go through the roof. Yeah. And it goes back to, I think really it goes back to reptile theory, right? Sending a message and all that. You're like, whoa, wait a second. We're not, we're not sending a message with compensatories, but they can't get out of their own way as far as that goes. So absolutely, it's almost baked in. And then if you have punitives in the case, all of a sudden now you got more problems, right? Because part of your compensatories were already punitives. Once yeah. you get the punitives, now you're just getting whacked again for what you already got whacked for in the compensatory. It's a, it's a, it's a double whacking. Now I'm going to give the punitive damages um, instruction. I, I'm, I'm going to give like, I think they're like a 10 seed in the Midwest. I, I don't see that as big in the, I think maybe that could be the clearest definition on the entire form. Do you have a yeah. case of punitive? I mean, it says wanton, reckless, you know, deliberate indifference. They tend to get that, right? Right. Um, but all this other stuff we're talking uh, about, wow. So I think, now, did I leave anybody out? Did anybody not make the tournament here? No, I think, I think we're, we're good. We had some bubble teams, but I think, I think oh, allocation allocation we're gonna sneak one uh, a bubble team that sneaks oh. in uh we'll give them the number 16 seed uh out west is this the whole process of allocation of fault when you have you know you have plaintiff on the line and they have to break down those percentages i think that's probably the easiest one uh yeah. except when you have a jury panel that can't add to 100 well uh, that's oftentimes yeah, that's a problem. But what I do see, I think that's where you see some of the best discussions. And here's the here's the other thing that doesn't because the whole jury form is illogical. People tend to start like say allocation of of negligence or fault or whatever is question number five. The discussion always starts there. Right. Right. Because what you're supposed to do is yes, no, party one. Yes, no, party two. Causation party. Right? And you're going there, and then you get to allocation usually what happens is the jurors sit down, they don't even look at the verdict form and they just start talking and they start assigning proportions, right? Yeah. Of blame. And so I think that's how the human brain likes to process information. I think that's where a lot of jurors get started. And I think of all the questions that they have to answer, I think that's probably the most understandable and probably the, the least struggle that we get. Would you agree with that? Oh, I absolutely. I absolutely agree. And I think to your point about how the human brain works, you know, a lot of times we get pushback from clients and they're like, oh, get in there, fix it, fix it. They're, they're not supposed to be at an allocation right yet. But to your point, that's how they do it, right? It's that's just, how they do it. Happens, as I always say, right, it's, it's how the sausage gets made. You would never get a chance to see that in a real trial. You just happen yeah. to get a peek behind the window in this. But that's how jurors are doing it in real cases. So that that's how they do it. And I, f- I feel bad for the jurors because again, the whole system is completely illogical, right? You have a judge saying, listen to both sides. 
<laughs> don't make any decisions. Oh, by the way, here's your instruction. You go back in this room and make a group decision. Okay, Steve, that's not what happens. That's never happened in the history of any lawsuit, okay? The jurors start leaning heavily one way. Actually, they start leaning in jury selection. They start more heavily leaning after openings. And then once they start hearing key witnesses, boom, they're locked in. And, and so by the time they even hear these instructions, they're locked in. I would think, I mean, based on 18 years of doing this and we watched the data I don't see a lot of juror movement after closings or rebuttals. You may get one here, one there, right? But you don't yeah. see like 10 jurors after a closing move over to the other side, right? No. No, to your point, and I think this is a whole nother podcast topic later. Yes. But we've had conversations with attorneys about that too, right? Where they like, wait, so it's, so it's not over after my opening statements? It's like, no, no. And, and to your point, it's not they're not waiting until your closing statement either. So it's not like you need to spend your whole closing statement trying to convince everybody who was on the fence. Like you said, by that time, all you're really doing, as we told this attorney is giving them firepower and giving them snippets and giving them things to go in and use in jury deliberations. It's not like all of a sudden they're going to see the light in your closing arguments that they never saw earlier on in the trial. Yeah. It's just not how the brain's wired and any juror that does jump all over the place is typically not a very strong juror and they tend to be all over the place in deliberations too. And right. they, they, they tend to, they tend to get beaten down. So I think, okay. So lesson learned to kind of wrap up this topic. Um, I think you need to take the time starting in jury selection uh, to get some of these issues out there, particularly the causation issue. And we can work with our clients to develop those questions. Obviously, I think the negligence issues are, are already there. But then particularly, I do think in the closing, it's a good it's a good way to say, here's what the judge is going to instruct you really shortly. And you do that. You instruct them. Right. And you can take those definitions and um, uh, don't draw an objection, but, you know, make them you know simplify them a little bit more. Tell them what they can and can't do. I mean, the nice thing about closing arguments is typically unless it's a reptile closing arm that's completely inappropriate judge kind of lets you do what you want in closing. So I think that's a time where you can prime the jury to say, here's how these questions are going to come out. Oh, by the way, you may want to jump from negligence to damages, but you can't do that because the, the judge says you can't. And here are these instructions that you're going to get and prime them. So if something like that happens, which did happen in one of the other panels in our mock jury, one of the jurors said, whoa, 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 we're not allowed to do that. Did you yeah. hear the instruction? And so it does, it does work. I think it just takes, it's going to take more attention from defense counsel going forward. No, I agree. All right. We're going to wrap up with some viewer mail. Wanna- I've got, oh, I've got viewer mail too. We may want to save some for next time too, but uh, what, 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 what do you got? Cause we're getting questions, particularly as we travel um, all kinds of getting worn out with questions. So I just try to write them down and bring them to the podcast. What do you, what do you got? I got one I just got asked the other day, which I thought was good. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when we're teaching our witnesses about the concept of it depends, right? Because a lot of times it's going to be the correct answer to a question is it depends. There was some concern with some of the attorneys that said, well, how does, doesn't that make it look like the witnesses being dodgy when they're saying it depends? So kind of, what do you, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? I know you have an answer. I mean, what do you, what would you respond as far as how that goes? I'm going to go, I'm going to go on another rant right now. Okay. So you have, so you have, it depends. 
right? Which there are more elaborate ways to say that, which I'm going to go over that in a second. Otherwise, it's yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but pivoting. Okay, pivoting sucks, right? I've made this very, very clear to the point where I think it's unethical to instruct the witness to do that because they're going to get clobbered. Okay, experts that have a lot of testimony experience, they can get away with it because they've been down this road before. Yeah, you get an expert that's testified a hundred times before, they can play that game all day because they're expert witnesses. This is what they do. You get a fact witness trying to pivot their way out. That's what looks evasive, defensive, and argumentative. Now, where you can get in trouble with it depends is you don't want it to come across like a broken record. Okay. So we give our witnesses, they all mean the same thing. First of all, extend that. That depends on the full set of circumstances, period. Okay. No, I've never had a juror in 18 years have a problem with that answer. Okay. Other similar, they all mean the same thing equally as effective. That's not necessarily true in all situations, right? More simple ones. Sometimes that's the case. Not always. Every situation is different. If you, if any witness rotates through those, boom, 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 you're going to be highly effective. But if the witness starts to pivot and starts yapping, you know, getting their yapper going and going, you're opening up the door to more counterattack from the cross examiner. And they're absolutely going to, going to clobber you with it. So it's key to put the witnesses through the type of training that we do and give them those tools so they could switch it up a little bit right but here where the rubber meets the road sometimes you have a witness i our producer yelled at me the other day so i got to be careful what with what i say here because i got i got i got yelled at i got dinged some witnesses are less sophisticated than others is that did i did that come across okay yes very vanilla Leave it at that. If I get in yeah. trouble for that, I'm, I'm going to quit the podcast. And with a less sophisticated witness, they may have to do the, it depends, it depends, it depends, because they don't have the capability to work in these other answers. I don't care. <laughs> because at the end of the day, that deposition is going to be successful. Okay. And then if you're at trial, you have the ability to rehab or direct examination <laughs> that witness. So worst case scenario, they just stick with it depends. And they get through the depth, they survive, it's the C plus, you're still alive, you're still in the fight. But if they start trying to explain the, their way out of things, that's where that's where the train's gonna go off the tracks. Yes, excellent, awesome, very, very good. So I, and to your point, I think one of the biggest things about tra- training the witnesses to your point is to not make them sound like a broken record, or at least to yeah. tell them, yeah. hey, answer the question within these parameters, find your own words and your own language as far as how you say that it depends, you know, just don't, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. So I think that's a, that's a great point to hammer home for, for any witness or oh, anybody. Yeah. Who, what else you All got? Right. You got any other, you got any questions? Oh, I, got, I, I got, I got viewer mail. Good. And we're up to something next 10 minutes. All right. I'm going to give this question to you, but it's authored to me. Dear Bill. I have a case in which I want to badly blame the plaintiff for everything. Is this a bad idea? Our juror's going to get mad at me. Speaking of it depends. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that's my answer to that one. Right. I mean, I mean, Steve, I mean, you work on, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of these cases. There's sometimes if you try to blame the plaintiff, it's going to, it's going to blow up in your face. Yeah. Whereas other just- times, other times you better 
blame uh, the, the plaintiff. I think it's, it just really depends on the type of case you have and, and really what the, what the facts are, because I think there's cases probably that you really want to blame the plaintiff. And if you, if you remember the concept of piling on, you know, you get a 15 yard penalty for that in football. I think if you do that, jurors can get mad. I think there's a more subtle way to do it. Right. No, I agree. I think a lot of times in those cases that we're talking about is that's always usually my recommendation is to just kind of give the jurors a little bit of ammunition and they'll come to it themselves. Like you don't need Plant to go the up there and just bop, 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 and, just, and, and hammer on the plaintiff, you know, to, just sprinkle it in a little bit and then let the jurors come to it. And then it's less about the attorney piling on and more about the jurors piling on themselves because they're not yeah. stupid. They're going to see it. They're going to be angry. They're going to be upset. So they don't need you to come up there and stoke the flames a lot more. And I can think of a, a case vividly in my mind right now where we had that situation where yeah. it couldn't, go too far on this plaintiff because you know it would became, it would become very very problematic so we had to kind of soft pedal it and just highlight the case facts which then led jurors to say wow yeah this person is not good well like that's why i like that test retest design you know day one you can go hard at the plaintiff see what happens day two you back off you know you plant the seed let the jury water it maybe focus more on causation and see what happens see if jurors get mad i mean that's really the one way uh, to find out. Okay. Uh, last question. This you're going to, this is, I'm put totally putting all the pressure on you. You're going to love this. Dear Bill, I need to do some jury research for my case. I want to do a mock trial with you because I want to see the juries deliberate over liability and damages. However, my client wants me to sign up for a survey to get more people filling out questionnaires, but there's no deliberations. What are the pros and cons of both? Wow. I've been seeing this a lot, right? Yeah. Meaning a lot, you get more data, but it's all individual versus doing the mock trial, less data, but you get the dynamics of the deliberation process. Dr. Wood, what do you think? Uh, well, for as a, as a research, initially a research nerd, I do like the higher sample size and I do like the you know, statistical odds and that, and being able to get all that information. With that said, there, you go back and look at literature for years and years and years that shows that individual verdicts, individual decision-making and group decision-making is vastly different. Yes, what someone yeah. will do, what someone will say, how someone will act when they're at filling out a questionnaire on their individual verdict form and how they'll actually fill out that and answer that same exact question with the group are completely different. So yeah, you might, I mean, it would depend on what you're trying to get information on. Are you trying to get perceptions yeah. of your witness? Are you trying to get perception of the strength of your case? Okay, well maybe then getting a hundred jurors to fill that out and give their input would be beneficial. But if you're looking for how much exposure you're gonna have, you know, how are they gonna see negligence? How are they gonna see causation? How are they gonna interact? You can't, you can't do that through a survey. So it's gonna be tailored to what is it that you're really trying to find out? And like you said, if you're getting ready to, to go to war or you're getting ready to go to trial yeah. or getting ready to go to mediation that's you're going to want that more of that group dynamic of of a mock trial yeah i mean how many times in the mock trial where okay juror number five has been pro plaintiff all day they get into deliberations and they fold like a cheap suit yeah now sure. what if you only had that preliminary data and you started making jury selection decisions off of that that would that could lead to a lot of trouble 
Yeah. I mean, a lot of times to your point, there's a lot of people that have these very strong opinions on either, either side of the spectrum. And yeah, when they get into a, when push comes to shove and they actually have to explain themselves when they get into a room and six, you know, eight, well, however many other people are staring yeah. at them yeah. and say, okay, you have this thought and I'll back it up with any of the evidence you heard or <laughs> explain it in a clear and concise way. They just, uh, 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 and then I want to go home. I yeah. want to go home. Yeah. So, I want to go home. I, I do like it from a, a certain aspect. I do like the higher numbers, but like you said, it really going back to what we always say, it depends. It depends on what you're looking for. I don't think a survey is a bad way, like, like really early in discovery to get some preliminary data. The problem is cheap clients want to take that and use it as the gold standard for jury selection. You can't do that. No, no, I would, I would highly caution against it. And I would personally not feel comfortable giving recommendations for jury selection if that's all we had. And then a client told me, yeah. help me pick a jury. And all I had was that. I, I would not be very comfortable at all. And I, and I wouldn't be, I wouldn't put a client in that position because I wouldn't, I wouldn't want them to have a bad outcome based upon bad data. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last issue. And I'm going to let you wrap it up. I'm taking a four day weekend off next weekend. Guess who I'm going to go see in concert twice. I think you Metallica. No, it is Metallica, isn't it? Yeah. That's what I thought. Why is this not our podcast intro? I mean, listen to this. I, I should play this before witness prep, right? This should I be our always, intro I, hear, to the I can podcast. barely hear it. Yeah. Should be the intro to the podcast. And we can just rock out for 30 seconds. But I'm going to go see these guys. I'm going to see them twice, two times in three nights. It's a four-day music festival, and that's my mental health. I'm not looking at my phone. Here we go. This is what they play at Virginia Tech when the players walk on. Yeah, I've seen, stays, I've seen that. It's a pretty awesome. intimidating, pretty yeah. intimidating uh, uh, stadium to play in. But that's going to be my four days of um, Metallica, Stone Temple Pilots, several others, uh, really good uh, 90s and 2000 uh, rock bands. And I'm not answering my phone. I'm not doing any podcasts. Imagine if I podcasted from the concert. That actually, that could be pretty cool during yeah. Metallica, but you couldn't, you couldn't hear a damn thing I was saying. Yeah, I've seen Metallica in concert. They put on an awesome show. So two, two times is going to be twice, twice. excellent. Two full sets. Very two awesome. full sets. All right, take us away, dude. All right. Well, this has been another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. As we always say before, go to www.courtroomsciences.com. We have a lot of our podcasts up there, articles, blogs, anything you name it. And if you need to get a hold of us, be Kanaski at courtroomsciences.com or me, S. Wood, at courtroomsciences.com. Thanks for joining us for another edition. We'll see you soon.